Because we all, look, and uh, we all have to support each other. And um, you know what? Your voice, you might think that it doesn't, it's, put your voice out there. Put your work out there because they're guaranteed. They're, this is a country of 300 million people. You will find people who identify with you and what you're saying. And you're probably not wrong uh, with whatever your, your feelings and observations are that aren't being uh, represented by the mainstream media or entertainment system. Eita, Brasil. Tá comigo? New York, I know you Humans, what's going on? Welcome back to another episode of La Mescla, the show where we explore all the intricacies, intersections, and intense awkwardness of being a mixed race or first generation human in this thing we call a country. My name is Adrian Burke. I'm the creator and host of this show. I'm so happy to have you here. Please make sure to like and subscribe on all the platforms and especially leave uh, reviews and ratings. It means a lot for the development of the show. And let's get into it. Our guest this week is the wonderful Gabe Pacheco. Gabe is a Chicano comedian who's been on the New York City scene for over a decade. He just released a comedy album called Risky Behavior on 800 Pound Gorilla Records. Make sure to get that wherever you get your comedy content and make sure to leave a rating and review and just signal boost Gabe's stuff. Uh, he's appeared at Caroline's, Creek in the Cave, The Knitting Factory, the Asheville Comedy Festival. He's been all over the place. Uh, he's also a member of the Story Pirates community here in New York. Uh, Gabe is a super wonderful, super prolific comedian. I was so excited to have him on the show. We talked about a lot, a lot of stuff. Gabe is a super knowledgeable dude. We talked about his, uh, his upbringing as a mixed Mexican and Greek uh, human in the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, talked about building his comedy act, about his uh, his experiences with ayahuasca. We covered a lot of ground in this one. I'm really excited for you to hear it. Uh, so hope you enjoy. How's it going, Adrian? Uh, very good. Thank you so much for coming today. I'm really excited to be here. I'm so excited to have you. I'm just excited to get my voice out there into the ether. <laughs> Spoken like a true attention-seeking comedian. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's what we all are, right? Yeah, for sure, for sure. And uh, But, you know, it's uh, I've been doing this for a little while, and, and now I've just reached a point where it's no longer just about getting attention but about trying to uh, be my authentic self. Well, okay. And with that, (laughs) I think we could segue into the show. Uh, (laughs) So welcome to La Mescla, where we talk about our authentic selves. Uh, So let's start. uh, This is the way I always start. So it's just uh, tell us where your parents are from and where you grew up. Yeah, that's fine. That sounds good. So I was uh, (laughs) raised in Washington, D.C. I was born in Oakland, California. Okay. Uh, But my my, uh, formative experiences have been here on the East Coast. And my father is, uh, well, I'm a Chicano. My father is a Chicano as well. You know, we're Mexican-American. And, uh, I, you know, it's questionable on what side of the border he was born. But, you know, that's just the way it is. It's questionable. Yeah. And okay, then, gotcha. Uh, and then my mother is, you know, she's um, an assimilated American, uh, and her family's Greek and German. Ah, okay. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, but we grew up in uh dc like right in the center of the city which is an international mecca Mm -hmm. people from all over the world and my first language was spanish okay so uh, my primary caregiver was a wonderful beautiful woman from el salvador named evangelina flores and so she took care of me when i was little and my parents shout out evangelina 
Yeah, so she's the best. And uh, yeah, my first language was Spanish. Me too. And I grew up watching, uh, you know, the, the, the Cold War play out in Central America on mm. her television set. And yeah. I would wear uh, like pasta colanders on my head and march around the backyard saying, Yo soy argentino. Es bueno ser argentino. Wow. To date myself. <laughs> wow. You know, Falkland Island Wars were popping off at that point. Wow, wow. And my parents were like, oh, man, we got to put this kid in an English-speaking school or he's going to turn out to be a fascist. <laughs> Latin history buffs are going to love this episode. <laughs> yes, sir. So did your mom speak Spanish? My mother, actually, she uh, speaks better Spanish than everybody because wow. she studied it in, in school. Okay. You know, she went to university and um, she spent some time in Mexico um, in, co in college and then... Uh, she's a lawyer. My mother's an immigration lawyer. Wow. And so, you know, from an early age, the house was always full of people from all over the world, mm. um, you know, and primarily people who were uh, escaping genocide somewhere. Wow. Either perpetuated by <laughs> U.S. foreign policy. Wow. Wink, wink. <laughs> Shit. Or, you know, but you know, humanity has, uh, all humanity has a dark side to it. Sure, so sure. I, I but you were exposed to that shit at a young age. Yes, yeah. So that I think that informs a little bit about my my idea of identity and uh, and race mm -hmm. and um, you know why we're all here in the United States right now. Yeah. The immigrant experience yeah. is not always one of. Um, I think it's portrayed in the mainstream media as one of sort of come people coming here to strive for an opportunity, and mm -hmm. that this being sort of a bastion of equality and. Uh, <laughs> A place where we can all just accumulate capital. Yeah, that's but, how it works. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a dark side to immigration as well and, and why, pe why people are here. Yeah. They're not always here because they just, out of free will, decided that they wanted to come here. To... Yeah. yeah, a lot of them kind of are fleeing things. <laughs> yeah, this is a country full of uh, tax cheats, uh, <laughs> scoundrels, uh, refugees from ethnic cleansing, and... Uh, and imported enslaved human beings. So let's not forget that. <laughs> and mic drop. <laughs> yeah, that was, I think that was the quickest an episode's gotten super heavy <laughs> in the history of this show, but I loved it. Hey, Adrian, I gotta. So yesterday I had like a, a benchmark moment okay. in my comedic career that I, I wanna share with you. Please. And I think it it's relevant because. Um, about a month ago, I did my first comedy show in Spanish. Mm. Oh, shit. Spanish is my first language, but, you know, after about first grade, I was in a in an all-English-speaking school. Exact same thing. Exact same thing. So my syntax and grammar is, like, frozen in this very kindergarten stage. Yeah, I'd say my Spanish sits somewhere between second and third grade level. Yeah. Uh, and, like, I'm, <laughs> I'm so self-conscious about my accent, too. Yes. Yeah. And, and all that, all that comes into play. And, but the thing is, is that, uh, we, uh, I've realized that everything is imperfect. So every performance is just a snapshot of where we are right now. Mm. Every, and people don't, people just care about watching you try. So I've traveled to Ecuador, Costa Rica, Mexico, and I have the, probably the worst accent of my family, but mm -hmm. I'm the boldest member of it. Yeah. So I'm the one who gets the uh, native speakers to want to, like, they're the ones that pour me shots of tequila. Wow. They're, like, not my other family members. They're like, they're like oh, yeah, we want to hear you talk. Oh, you shit. Know? Plus, I've learned, uh, thank, thank goodness, a little bit of acting training. I've learned how to use my body. Miming is great. Uh, if it's a Spanish-speaking show, for sure. Yes. 
So to get back to this very, very quickly, so I did my first Spanish-speaking show, and um, I, ha I was getting a tension headache around this, uh, around the idea of doing it, leading yeah. up to it, and uh, and I was very nervous. I had open mic energy. You remember, like, the first show you ever did? That oh, sort yes. Of, oh, yes. But I have all of the techniques from a decade of doing stand-up and pantomiming, so I was able to to make it work. and. Uh -huh. And uh, I, find, I got the tape back, and it, it looked really, really good, high-quality tape. So I put it online, and I got to share it with, so Lena, we talked about her earlier, Evangelina mm -hmm. Flores. Mm -hmm. She's turning 80. She has uh, lung cancer. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't see her enough, but I think of her as a second mother. And at no point have I been able to share what my experience as a, as a comedian is, because she's like, ¿qué haces? And yeah, I'm like, she's oh, like, what uh, is that? Mira, es algo muy divertido donde yo hago chistes. Yo soy comediante. Y no tengo like, plata. Yeah. And she's like, oh, okay. So for her, it doesn't really make any sense what I'm doing. I can't really yeah. explain it. And so now I made this, I got this video of the first Spanish set in, in uh, New York City. And I sent it to her and her adult daughter, and they got to see it. And so I feel really like that was the thing that I always wanted to do was like reconnect with the people that are closest to me that and share what I do with them in a way where they can, where it's meaningful. Yeah, wow. How did she react to the tape? Oh, it was great. She yeah. loved it. She was yeah. into it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but it took me so long to, to even create this little artifact. Right. To, to be able to give back to like, um, you know, the people that were my first, uh, the first humans to really, uh, rate, to raise me. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Shit. So that was like an that's, origin, going back to the origin, to that's the some, source. Some full circle shit. Yes. That's amazing. Yeah. I, the idea of doing a Spanish show, like, tension headaches is a good, <laughs> is a good way to describe it. Uh, cause it's, I do, I mean, I don't know. I, I have the added element of like passing really, really well. Uh, but like. Sure. I, I, the the imposter syndrome when I'm in like mostly Latinx rooms is like yeah. so 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 strong. Well, what's interesting about this is I was meditating on this earlier today, and um, the white passing, which I have too. White, it's white presenting, white sure. passing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and uh, uh, it only means something in the U.S. as a handicap because uh, white supremacy. Mm -hmm. So white supremacy here. Uh, wants everyone who's the other to look like the other. Like, Say that again? Uh, so white supremacy in the U.S., in terms of our, our mainstream media, is looking at, well, if you're Hispanic, if you're Latino, if uh -huh. you're Latinx, if you're Chicano, then you yeah. are uh, indigenous, or else why would you be, right. uh, why would you be a second-class citizen <laughs> yeah, yeah, if yeah, you're yeah. not brown or if you're not black? Sure. So, but whereas... You know, if you spoke perfect Spanish and we were in Mexico City right now, you would have your own telenovela. Sure. Yeah, that's you true. Know? That's true. And same thing in Peru, although uh, white supremacy is definitely uh, very, very ever-present, at least in Peru. That's right. So that's why I'm saying that there you would you would benefit from right. Right. your, you know, all the, all the cream that's been in your coffee. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good way to put it. Yeah, this country is a really special case in a lot of ways. And when I say special, I mean deeply fucked up. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, but yeah, I've, I thought about that um, too. You know, it's it's uh, it's always a challenge, and I think you brought this up on other episodes. But going out for auditions is uh, is a headache because you know the name is like Gabriel Guadalupe Pacheco right. or Gabe Pacheco, and then yeah. I show up and they're like, "Oh man, we didn't. You weren't exactly what we wanted for this <laughs> like uh, like Cancun 
yeah. uh, vacation spot yeah, sponsored li- by Bacardi. <laughs> That's too specific to be to be fake. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, in those casting rooms, they're lo- they're so obviously looking for one very specific thing. Like they're looking for Gina Rodriguez, and like that's fine, that's cool, I love her. But like, not every Latino actor is gonna fall into like into that box. Yeah, I mean, honestly, that's why I like the show Narcos. Is uh, I like these. I don't care. I like I like Breaking Bad because for let's just go back. I loved Breaking Bad because they even though you know representations of of Latinos as criminals, it's like whatever. At least it was giving yeah. so many interesting diverse actors right an opportunity to showcase and their local talent. locals to that area like shot in New Mexico. Like they were actually hiring people from there and whatnot. Yeah, it's awesome. And then and then Narcos. I look at that show and I think, you know, you you get to see like the whole spectrum of not entirely, but you do sure. get to see a larger, a broader representation of the spectrum yeah. of yeah, Latinos. Yeah, yeah. Sure, for sure. Uh, yeah, no, I love those shows. I, I Obviously, there's like a broader problem of like uh, overrepresentation of like Latinos as drug dealers. Sure. But like if it's done well, then I'm more willing to overlook that. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think I, I'm someone I look at... I just like watching extremes anyway. True. And the United States has always been like we've always uh, held up cowboys and the western yeah. as as a something that we we love to watch. Same thing with gangster movies. I was about to say, yeah, the mobster genre. So we look at these things, and it's like it, it becomes problematic when we start. Um, and I put problematic in quotes when I say that when we put. Uh, brown and black faces in those roles of being right. the outlaw. Right. Because we've criminalized those people in in the framework of white supremacy. Yeah. But in terms of like universally the stories that we love. Oh, true. Those stories that we love are hyper-violent and I hyper- will... I yeah. will still watch a new documentary about Pablo Escobar. I will still watch it because because that narrative is fucking crazy. Or let's get even. Let's get a little bit more progressive. How about Griselda Blanco? Ooh. Yeah, let's get some let's uh, go. cocaine cowboys. Drop the, them the names. godmother of uh, Miami cocaine uh, hell distribution. Yeah. Hell yeah! I went to Miami for the first time like two weeks ago. Uh, it was fun, but I was like, uh, "This is not America. <laughs> like, I'm not in America right now." Well, yeah, and another thing I was. Meditating on coming here was like this. God, I'm uh, hitting all of the meditation points today. The, I love it. The uh, our our collective imagination, our collective imagining of a nation. Mm-hmm. You know, and and you know, part of this podcast is like questioning what does it mean to be an American? What does it mean to be an immigrant? For sure. And you know, uh, the Chicano uh, experience is one where we, looking back at the history, it's like Mexico used to be California and Texas, Mm. and New Mexico, and Arizona. So uh, a lot of, like, the Chicano experiences, like, we didn't come here. We were always here. Right. And uh, the imagined borders of the country sort of have have pushed past us. Yeah. And that, and so, yeah, what, what does it mean to be an American? And you were talking about Miami, and I think, oh, Miami is a financial capital of Latin America. Yeah. It's a playground for the wealthy Latin Americans from all over. Yeah, those Repu- Cuban Republicans <laughs> yeah. hanging out all over the place, <laughs> <laughs> loving it. You know, and they're yes, they lay the they they're definitely like they're the base coat. Sure. But there's <laughs> the base coat. I love that. <laughs> the, the base the white <laughs> base coat. <laughs> but there's other um, people who moved there too as well in the right. diaspora and as well as the giant Haitian community there. Right, that right. So much um, distinct culture. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So, but Miami, yeah. Oh, and here's another mind-blowing thing. So Please. I was in Santa Fe 
New Mexico. I went on a road trip, and I'm in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And when I was there, they were celebrating their 400th year anniversary. And the United, and that was mind blowing when I thought about it because the United States is only you know it's like 200 and some change. Right. So this city in the United States of what is now the United States is it, is ancient. It predates the country. Yeah. Relative to yeah, relative to our most sacred documents. Yeah, Jesus. The, our Constitution. I was about to thirteen. I was about colonies. to say. I was about to say fuck our sacred documents, <laughs> but I feel like that's maybe not a great thing to say in a public forum. Uh, you know what? <laughs> <laughs> we we can update that like we could use it 2.0 we could oh, use it completely that's for damn sure that's how about for a, damn sure a completely different operating system like yeah. we don't even have to do a 2.0 of the constitution we could I, just I, yeah i'm write not something. i'm not reading the terms and conditions on that update probably <laughs> right <laughs> yeah uh yeah. so what so let's go back to like how do your parents meet oh that's a great question so my uh my mom was working in uh my father it was an activist at the time like a community activist uh, organizer mm-hmm. and um, my mother was a lawyer and she was um, working on some cases to uh, desegregate uh, schools in Texas mm. so you know what what desegregation it wasn't like a black and white thing it was more that they would the schools would create a um, Gifted and talented program, ah, okay. or uh, tracking. Now all these things now are like, you know, insidiously legal and colorless. But sure. at the time, the tracking system in Texas was: if you were uh, Mexican, Mexican American, they would put you in vocational training. Okay. So like you'd go into the remedial classes, the special ed classes, and then like the uh, the white children of the landowners would end up in like the uh, gifted and talented. Right. So her thing was showing that this was similar to uh, segregation in the South. and Shit. You know, and so my dad was, I don't know, they met during that time. And then, you know, one thing led to another. They ended up in San Francisco together, just mm-hmm. hanging out in the groovy 70s, you know, living in the Mission District the, when it meant living something. Living in the Mission District in the 70s, wow. Yeah, just, you know, going to Santana concerts or... Isn't that funny to think about? I mean, obviously things matter still now, but when you think about those times that your parents lived in, they feel like they mattered so much more. Like when my mom moved to New York, it was like 1970, 1971, and she moved into an apartment, uh, like straight from Peru, moved into an apartment on St. Mark's Place yeah. in like 1971. And that to me is like, that meant some shit. <laughs> Whereas yeah. St. Mark's Place now is like Pinkberries and yoga, <laughs> and yoga studios. <laughs> Yeah, she was in the epicenter of a lot of cool stuff. A lot of shit. A lot of shit. Yeah. So what was your mother's deal? Was she a... So she... uh, I mean, there was a whole uh, first husband situation uh, that was a component of the move that I actually didn't find out about until a couple years ago, which I find hilarious. Thanks, Mom. Uh, but she was also, she was a dancer, uh, like modern flamenco dance. So she was here in part to do that. And she was like working at a restaurant in Manhattan where she, uh, well, the first marriage kind of like the pans out the way it pans out. She, she's a manager at this restaurant, meets a, a very cute white bartender who's fluent in Spanish and they pump out two kids. Yeah. And that was a story. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yes, yes, yes. But she, so she was a dancer though. Yeah. So you yeah, come yeah. from artistic pedigree. A little bit, a little bit. Yeah. I mean, the dance thing didn't super pan out. Now she's a, she's a interpreter for the Supreme Court in White Plains, New York. Uh, and she's been doing that since, since I was a kid. She used to work at the courthouse in the Bronx, right by the old Yankee Stadium. So I spent a lot of my childhood in an office there and you could see right into the old Yankee Stadium and it was great. But yeah, she's an interpreter. So yeah, interesting, uh, the um 
Interpreters. One one of those weird gigs that you get when you're a freelance artist actor is sure. I was uh, I would work for an interpreter certification program for medical interpreters. Okay. So it was through NYU, but you know all of these um, very uh, Latinos who were kind of more affluent in the countries that they came from, mm-hmm. but that were here now. So their Spanish is perfect and their English is perfect. Right. But they're looking for, uh, you know, new avenues to make income. So they're they're thinking, I'll be a medical interpreter. Mm. And then I would I was brought in to be uh, what I would describe as um, uh, black magic improv. Like my job was to be the worst uh, doctor or worst patient that they could be confronted oh, with. I've heard of it. It's like what's it called? Um, standardized patient. Uh, stuff like I have friends who do this as a gig. Like, oh wow! Who I mean, without the interpretation component, like because at like Columbia Presbyterian or something, they they're like testing the bedside manner of new doctors. Yes. So they actually hire actors to come in and pretend to be like horrible patients. Exactly. So this is the exact same thing, but it's it's kind of like uh, the idea is that when you're a medical interpreter, you're going to be chat. Your own ethics and values are going to be tested. And you have to maintain this air of complete sort of objectivity and transparency when communicating between doctors and patients. And there are three levels of um, where dissonance can occur because the patients are coming from possibly a lower socioeconomic background or mm-hmm. they don't have the right words or they have a bunch of other hangups that are going to keep them from wanting to talk to the doctor. And then the doctor who is like, you know, a probably pretty... Uh, arrogant because they've gone through medical school yeah and uh are like and also not caring for the patient's cultural background Mm -hmm. and then you and then the interpreter's got to be like able to bounce off both those things without giving any attitude or getting flustered shit yeah that's one of the things i've always been most impressed with about my mom's job because i remember going and like watching her do it is the the not only the fact that it's two-way, that you have to do it both ways at the same time. Yeah. Uh, especially in a courtroom setting, which is fucking crazy. Uh, but then to, like, not have the emotion of the moment transfer onto you. Because I know she's worked on r- some really, like, kind of fucked up, like, violent crime cases. And yeah. Had, she's told me stories of she was like, she'd come home and she'd be like, Adrian, today I looked into the eyes of a monster. <laughs> 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 but, like, to be able to keep your composure in a situation like that where something uh, potentially fucked up is happening on either end of the equation, I think is so impressive. Yeah. And, like, part of the job was just staring, like, uh, would sit for the first uh, period of the class because it would be two hours. And the first... Uh, uh, hour, I would just observe and watch all of the hangups that every interpreter had. Mm. You know, whether it be like their, they'd be like overly flirtatious would be one. Oh, like whatever their strong suit is in their regular life, mm-hmm. their confidence, their uh, their uh, loudness. That would become their their, their weakness. Yeah, and, that's yeah. your weakness because it's the thing that makes you. Uh, that's where your ego is, mm. and to be a good interpreter, you have to kind of become. Um, Placid. You have yeah. to become affe- affectationless. Yeah. No, that's and, totally true. And so I would find these. I would just look at their strong suits, and then I would calibrate to to uh, to fuck with that. Wow. I don't know if that's. I can curse on here, but yeah, of course you can. Yeah, totally. That's so interesting. So you were trying to destroy these people. That's right. And then, and yeah, exactly. And we would we would play it out, and then the the instructor would. Pop, I mean, we got their consent before we. Took him on this emotional roller coaster, okay, but then, a, but then after that, we'd pause the pause the interaction and then ask like, okay, what 
what did they do well? What could they do differently? What would you do differently? Okay, what did you learn about yourself doing this? Well, you know, because uh, the worst case scenario would be that they are confronted with this in a situation where somebody needs to have their pancreas removed, like, immediately. Yeah. And they don't know how to... Oof. And they get shook. Yeah. So. Shit. That's so interesting. I wonder how I wonder how much that like that muscle you learned of like pinpointing a person <laughs> a per, where a person's ego sits contributes to your comedic voice. I wonder if that like enters into the equation at all. Uh, what a hundred percent. I used to do uh, real estate as well. I was a oh, real shit. estate agent, and you know I don't like I I uh, gave it up because it's also it just didn't sit well with my um my ethical disposition. Sure. But it didn't, it didn't mean that I tried for a minute. And, you know, this, the thing is, is you're not really selling an apartment. You're, you're reading a client to see what it is that they want and yeah. what they think they want. And uh, you got to know your mark. Man. Yeah, you got to know. You got to know. Oh, why are you moving? You're, you know, okay, they, they recently broke up and this person needs to move within a month. Oh, that's a great client. <laughs> yeah, that's an easy <laughs> sale. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where we're at, man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, cool. So, oh, what we got notes. We got I notes. Got, I just it. brought a couple of things, and I wanted. I just definitely wanted to make sure that I told you that thing about um, my 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 primary caregiver, my nanny. Oh yeah, that's beautiful. That, that's beautiful. Giving her that. Uh, I don't know that video. So I'm still I'm still glowing thinking about it. That's this was. This was recently. Like a, yeah, this was a month ago. Oh, uh, no, this was uh, yesterday that I sent, sent put that oh, my video God. out. That would like that would make my year. That would yeah. make my year. I still I don't think I found something uh translatable yet for my abuela who I'm mm. about to go visit I'm about to go down to Peru at the end of the month <gasps> to visit her uh a little bit my sister and I are going alone and it's going to be like half family trip half like we're going to go have fun and whatnot uh but I I and my abuela's 93 now she turned 93 this year so I don't have a ton of time but I just I feel like I have it she's supportive whatever but like you know the look on, on yeah. an old Latina woman's face when you're like oh I do acting and comedy and she's just like yeah I, I love you <laughs> <laughs> that's right we worked I worked I have a joke where I'm like uh, my my uh grandma my abuelita she had like uh 14 kids man she had a ton of kids yeah six for mine and uh, I talk about how our work ethics are, and she was a migrant worker, so she was working in fields, you know, she, and so she, it's like, in my mind, she was having kids on the job. That's how I picture it, you know, <laughs> so she's like just squirting kids out, like picking avocados. <laughs> and I'm like, my work ethic is so different. Like, yeah. if I update my Facebook and I get six likes, Ooh, I'm like, Ooh, I I'm need a Gatorade. I'm done for the day. I'm done for the day. It's so it's true. That <laughs> I think that's true of, of anybody, that, like, generational thing of, like, I don't have to work as hard as my parents. But for people with immigrant families, it's, like, times a million. It's, like, truly crazy to think about. Yeah, yeah. So don't get caught up in the guilt of not working as hard as they did. And uh, we're all on our own journey. That's one thing that I think about. We're all on our own journey in our own time and space. So what they did, they did to actualize the world that they wanted to... They, they became the person they wanted to be. Mm. And your responsibility is not to live up to their expectations, but to live up to your own expectations for what you want to be. Mm. And that's... Because uh, I think of this as a hang-up that it's easy to fall into like yeah. am i living up to you know my what my parents want for sure yeah and uh no kill them in your head <laughs> you have to honor you honor them by 
uh, ignoring them and making something great. Yeah, that's the... And then presenting it to them later. It's like the uh, it's the line from the new Star Wars movie. He's like, <laughs> uh, forget the past. Kill it if you have to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's what they did. That's what the immigrants that's true, did yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's for damn sure. Uh, so how much, how, because I, I haven't seen all of your act, like how much of your act is dealing with your, with your family history, with your heritage and stuff? Well, I think I talk a lot, I mean, in our, in our, based on our current climate, I focused a lot more on, when I started doing stand-up, it was like in alt rooms and all over New York City and this idea of, uh, of, you know, I wasn't black, I wasn't white, I'm not, I'm just gonna do this alt thing. Mm. And, uh. But now I've just mined a lot more of my personal experience for comedy. And my brother and sister both married people from other countries. Mm -hmm. So my brother married a woman from uh, Lithuania, and my sister married a guy from Ecuador. And so right there, there's like our whole family is this uh, bouillabaisse yeah. of different cultures. And uh, I, I bring that up a lot now because I think about like, you know, my brother-in-law had to ha was so hassled with his like, h1 um the visa visa in this nonsense where like you know th this is in the pet when we study u.s history w these were the um indentured servants mm. you know you bring immigrants over here and then you hold this sword over their heads yeah that if they complain or um you know their 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 uh citizenship is totally based on whether or not they stay employed at this company yeah fuck. so how is that you know, there's uh, extreme injustice there. Yeah. And uh, and then also that um, minimizes the ability of workers in this country to organize mm. if uh, some of the workhorse, workforce, yeah. the workhorses <laughs> are uh, are dependent on the company yeah. to, like, stay here. You know, yeah, you can't yeah. unionize if, if you're like, hey, you know, I'd like a raise. And they're like, nah, how about you go back to Ecuador? Yeah, it's, I mean, that's... <laughs> <laughs> the, I mean, that's the, it's the way this country's always worked. It's like one system of oppression never actually ending, but just changing forms like solid liquid to gas. And then also the acceleration of uh, their matrimonies. You know, people, people have to, honestly, I think the only reason to get married in this country at this point is to uh, help somebody get citizenship. Because, mm. uh, you know, my, I have a fiance now. And, Shout outs and, to all my friends who are in green card marriages. Hell yeah, <laughs> dude. Several. Do that. Do it. Who cares? Yeah, it's all it. fake. Fuck it. And. And also, why? Oh, so, um, I'm I, a hundred percent support uh, gay marriage. Mm -hmm. Let's say a hundred percent support it, as that anyone should be able to get into a relationship with anyone else and have it recognized. But and um, I don't want the government to be in anyone's romance. Mm -hmm. So like, I don't understand why I I have to go. In a in a cishet relationship, uh -huh. go down to a courthouse and get that yeah stamped and mm -hmm. authorized. Mm -hmm. So like the only the, for me the only people that I really care about getting married are uh, people marrying immigrants because it actually like it actually makes a difference beyond getting some tax breaks. Yes, yeah, yeah it, it it's like a it's like a golden pass into the club mm. where like don't worry you're not gonna have to go back to Honduras and get executed. Yeah. You know, because that's what happens when people go back to Honduras. Yeah, that's sadly very true. Um, and I, so yeah, my act now, I think about, um, I've got bits where I think about ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. You know, I have bits about going to Ecuador and uh, spending time there and meeting an ayahuasca uh, 
uh, healer Ooh. doing a ceremony with my my in-laws. Oh my God, you did a ceremony. Oh yeah, it was the oh, best. Shit. I, I've contemplated because I mean, ayahuasca is very big in Peru and I've always felt like I should maybe try a ceremony of some kind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great. Everyone should do it. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, did you feel like you gained some insight from it? Well, I also have this thing where, yes, a hundred, yes, uh, I definitely gained insight from it, but I also have this thing where I don't like to idealize the other as, um, like magical or better. Right. So even within the story I tell, like this is, it's, it's true that I, we did this, uh, ayahuasca experience, uh, ceremony and it was to a degree, capitalism has taken over that too, because these, uh, indigenous people are taking money, mm. uh, from like adventure tourists yeah. who are coming to I do mean, the shit, ceremonies. There are whole like services, like getaway services to like go and, uh, yeah. on a vision quest or whatever. Uh, totally. I, I've met enough rich white people from New York who are like, I'm going, uh, to Costa Rica or something to do this vision quest and I'm paying like $4,000 to do it. Or <laughs> Absolutely. Like so I did it twice. And the first time I did it, was in the rainforest in Ecuador outside of the city Santo Domingo de las Zachilas. Mm -hmm. And the Zachilas are this indigenous community down there that have, uh, they, they cut their hair into bowl cuts and paint them bright red. Mm. And so we go and we meet this guy, Don Manuel, and he's like, Te puedo dar la ceremonia. And we're like, okay, cool. So we get ready. And he goes, Primero, no comes nada uh, con, con carne hoy, solo frutas. And I was like, okay, got it. And then he's like, Toma mucho agua. Okay, got it. He's like, uh, Trágame este especial jabón. And okay. we had to go get some soaps and we had to get some like uh, aftershave and some cigarettes. He wanted cigarettes. <laughs> and we. <laughs> And we spend the whole day like <laughs> he fasting. Made, he made you do his grocery shopping <laughs> yeah. before you did anything. And uh, we go and like, you know, he's, um, it's a little uh, commune that he lives on. It's a compound with five or six different houses. And he's got a couple wives there and there's a whole bunch of dogs running around and several adult sons. And uh, they take us into this little hut and we, and he's like, he's like, ¿Qué, qué quieres? ¿Quieres el macho o el hembre? And it was like, do you want the weak? Do you want the strong yeah, yeah. potion or the weak one? And it's like me and like my brother and Jaime, my brother-in-law and my sister. And, and it's like three dudes and one lady. And we're like, yo, we're going for the macho. Oh, shit. <laughs> if you want the hembra, you can have that. But we, so we all had macho because my sister, like, she keeps up. She was you like, know? fuck it. Hell yeah. yeah. Oh, God. She I don't know if role. I would have the balls to do the macho. So we did that. And, uh, and it was, it was cool. But like, um, there wasn't a lot. He was not a, uh, gentle, uh, guide you sure. know he was just like there was there was incantations and songs and and it was fine but it was all in spanish and it it was very much he definitely put on a show for us but we paid for the show and uh then we we all start we go, we get into it we all get into the um experience the ayahuasca experience and it's uh tremendous you're having you're replaying scenes from your um past mm in vivid vivid detail so sure. it's not a drug it's not a drug where you're moving around or dancing or talking to each other it's a very meditative experience where you're just in your own head yeah, yeah. and i've never done ayahuasca but i've had the uh, yeah hi mom i've had similar experiences so i feel like i know what you're talking about yeah and it's and it's interesting because i the second time i did it i had a guy that it was don don uh, arturo and this guy, he had this cartography of the, of the mind, which he was using. Mm -hmm. And before we did, before we uh, ingested the, uh, the sacred 
ayahuasca the second time he the don arturo was like um you're gonna enter three different states of being the first state is the state of the condor and if you're in the state of the condor you are uh having visions about uh grander uh structures you're like you're you're looking at an, an entire worldview you're looking at how cities are organized you're looking at uh, the the lofty ideas of democracy mm. or uh, how how societies are are created mm -hmm. and then so you're either there or you're in the realm of the jaguar if you're in the realm of the jaguar you will be having visions about your interpersonal life your relationship to your boss your ex-girlfriends your ex-boyfriends your lovers your family so you're going to be replaying these vividly and it, or you're in the you're in the realm of the serpent and the realm of the serpent is uh, sort of like your primal pre-verbal place where your initial fears and mm. traumas exist wow so if you find yourself in a weird vision uh-huh don't freak out yeah just think which of these three categories is this vision in and then realize that the medicine is trying to teach you something to heal you around one of these. Yeah, that's nice. That's a good way areas. to look at it. So, yeah, so he gave a scaffolded um, sort of worldview or, or a, a cartography of the mind to like help a roadmap. Yeah, but it's nice because it's not it's not so structured that you'll be like locked into a specific experience. It's like broad enough that you can categorize something while still having this kind of transcendent experience with it that's right now the first guy don manuel right we're in the rainforest <laughs> and we, and we mr start, go get me cigarettes yeah we start tripping and but he's like honestly the more authentic one he's like the zachila indian you know yeah, yeah, yeah. so he's not the burning man dude yeah <laughs> <laughs> so the zachila indian he's like he's giving us this whole run through and then we're dancing we, he, they're dancing behind us they're singing and then his cell phone goes off <laughs> And he like picks it up and takes a phone call. That's amazing. And then he's like, uh, disculpame, necesito ir. And he just abandons us to trip alone in the rainforest. Yo. And, uh, and then we, there were, like I said, there was a compound with several huts. Mm -hmm. But they never told us like what to do when we were done. You know, so when they left us, we were like, okay, well, where's the bathroom? And like we had to stumble into this into the pitch black rainforest with like the sounds of two cans and you know oh that's one of my worst fears raccoons rainforest and... <laughs> at night is one of my worst fears truly and we yeah we, we find the we find the bathroom and there's giant spider webs like straight out of arachnophobia yeah like everywhere yeah, and it's... there are fucking tarantulas everywhere <laughs> I can't. i'm getting freaked out already and then like you know we we just there's no locks on any of the doors to the huts so we just like wander into one and we're like i guess this is our bed tonight yeah wow And we crashed on these um you know very rough like the, like not like a bed with sheets just yeah, like yeah. a cot sure in a on a dirt floor mm -hmm. room and my brother and sister they were like that didn't feel authentic like that felt i felt ripped off it, 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 in some way and i was like i got so many lessons and all the like the lessons i got were like don't wait in line mm. do what you need to do um no one's gonna hand it to you mm. but That's everything you lesson. need is there so the abundance exists in this space mm. but it's up to you or me to like just say yeah i'm worth it and this is what i want to do and you take it that's a beautiful lesson to take away from it yeah so uh so i i took that that experience with my my brother and sister would ha have a different experience we went the second time we went to soho and we're at a yoga studio in soho we get there and the week before they sent us an email that was like get ready for the ceremony you know think about your intentions all week 
uh, drink water all week, don't eat meat all week, you oh, know, shit. and it was like this whole like uh, almost like a landmark or Tony Robbins like, you know. Yeah. I, and I'm like, dude, you can't get enlightenment from an email chain. Like what? <laughs> so then we show up at this event and it's like, you know, Don Arturo, he's like definitely like he's really like a uh, he's indigenous, but everyone around him is like all affluent white people mm. and he's got like five white assistants they called angels and they were all like beautiful they model. were called angels yeah wow beautiful angel white women uh-huh. with like big with cheekbones that were higher than their like you know they're like eight six feet tall but the cheekbones were eight feet tall <laughs> got it and they're like calling it like are you in the medicine right now and like people were throwing up and they're like oh you're getting well you're wow. getting well and i'm like they've got like this coded like goop language wow that they're using don arturo <laughs> Running a weird uh, cultish empire. Yeah, and so I I appreciated the um, the uh, wildness of the the I got more insight out of the first experience. Sure, second one that felt a little bit more handholdy and uh, for an audience that I'm not like a fan of. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Anything goopy, I I can't abide. Yes, (laughs) I can't abide (laughs) the vagina eggs and whatnot. (laughs) Goop life. Yeah, goop life. Yeah, I definitely want to try something like that. The uh, the whole psychedelic experience uh, arena is fucking fascinating to me. I read the, Have you read uh, that book, How to Change Your Mind? No. I just, uh, I read that a couple months ago. It's super, super fascinating. What was one big takeaway you got from it? Uh, okay, well, I read this like six months ago. Well, what I really liked about it was like it's, it's half, uh, it's just like a third history book, a third... Um, like journalism and then a third what he calls like travel log which are literally this guy's like firsthand experiences doing i believe it's lsd ayahuasca and dmt yes uh i think those were the three he did and the big takeaway from it is the power of set and setting um the sort of slippery nature of these kinds of drugs how it's really hard to categorize them as one thing because they mostly amplify things that are already happening with the individual in question yeah uh that's the stuff that was very fascinating to me because there's been so much government propaganda and the history of this stuff has been to like either demonize or for some people completely idealize these drugs uh when they're when they're like very specific to the individual the experiences that they bring out yeah. Well, when you, um, I, uh, there's a journalist, Johan Hari, and he's got a book called Chasing the Scream, which is about the war on drugs. Mm. And it's, uh, he goes and interviews people all over the world. But when we look at why marijuana was initially uh, made illegal, it was because it was uh, racial. Yeah. It was, they're like, well, Mexicans who it's are always about the immigrants. Are it's always <laughs> about the immigrants. Smoking uh, hemp, marijuana. And yeah. so we're like, we're going to, you know, criminalize them. Yeah. And, uh, and then you look at the, like, reefer madness and, like, mm. you know, it's uh, all of our racial hysteria is and all now based you've got, on, like, now you've got rich white dudes starting their cannabis businesses and making all the money in the world while people are still sitting in jail for it. <sighs> yeah. And, you know, I grew up in D.C. in the 80s, man. And D.C. was the murder capital of the country at the time. And a lot of that was based on the crack boom. Yeah. And uh, that, so right there I'm looking at, like, the, the horrifying... Um, you know uh, the the blowback from the war on drugs and like w- w- how how useful and effective is it to criminalize a, a community and uh, make it just accelerates yeah. and makes the conditions more terrible yeah so for for people who are users and um, and it, it elevates the price of the product and it makes it more attractive for 
young people with no other opportunities to want to get involved in the trade. Yeah, because they have no other option. Yeah. Yeah, it's a big cash grab. Things are great. (laughs) (laughs) Things are great, right? But that informed my sense of, you know, uh, social justice is growing up in a city like this because I grew up in relative privilege. You know, my mother's a lawyer. My father worked for the city and then federal government. So I was fine. I was comfortable. But your mother's an immigration lawyer. So you you were exposed to things on a grassroots level. Because a lot of people grow up with lawyers who are like, you know, corporate litigators or whatever. And those people are truly shielded from the rest of the world. Like you at least had a really like firm connection to it yeah and i would walk we'd walk down the street and there there was like tons of and then the homeless is a word but i like to say houseless okay there's these houseless people (laughs) because you know home is where the heart is but the houseless people (laughs) and they're uh you know uh, everywhere and my father we'd walk around and be like what's what what who is that man what's happening with him and i was like he's a victim of circumstance and he was like excellent mijo that's exactly right and so from an early age, I got this idea that uh, we aren't really individuals who uh, have agency over most of our lives. We're kind of, we are products of our environment and that uh, you and I could have radically different lives just based on a couple bad experiences mm-hmm. early on or where we were born. But, but what, what we are inherently is not that different. Mm. We're just, we're all just... Victims of circumstance. Yeah. Products of our time and place. No, but Gabe, you know what? Listen, <laughs> if you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and like oh. really work hard, then this country will reward you. Yes. I really think you got to give it more credit. <laughs> I mean, you know, one will always slip through the cracks, but um, yeah, <laughs> that's definitely not a, a worldview to... <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm with you. <laughs> to I, hang your hat on. I'm with you. And I especially, I grew up in a in a pretty uh, pretty affluent suburb of New York. Uh, and we were like, the way I always like to put it is like, everyone lived in houses, we lived in an apartment, baby. It was yeah. like kind of the way it was. Uh, but like that bootstrap ideology was like truly rampant. Uh, and I never like super knew how to deal with it until I kind of went to college and started actually reading things. But it's really, really frustrating to hear people who grow up in such massive privilege really like in their heart of hearts believe like this shit is meritocracy like at their very core that's how they feel (laughs) well i can't i don't know it's a famous comedian but i can't remember who it was at this moment but you know we we look at these guys on our dollar bills you know you see like a thomas jefferson or uh george washington and for someone who's like a historical or believes in the call to the United States. And they're like, oh, this guy was a hero. He's a good man. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's, they, these people have been turned into saints. But if you're like a white guy and you went back in time and George Washington like rode up on his horse, you'd be like, oh, what's up, man? Founding father. <laughs> if you're a black guy and George Washington rolls up on the horse, you're like, oh, he's shit. He's going to put me back in chains. Yeah, yeah. You know, that, yeah. that sociopath keeps us in yeah. his basement. And we do not, at least where I grew up, we do not. That That is nowhere at all present in the education system. Like, truly, these people are sanctified in every in every sense of the word, at least where I went to school. Right, right, yeah. I was blessed, I think, in that, like, I went to a, a pretty progressive uh, all-boys <laughs> Catholic school. A progressive all-boys Catholic school. Yeah, how that's crazy a, is that? That's a sentence. Well, I, what I mean by that is that there was all the nonsense. There was, like, the whole pro-life stuff was happening there we had opus day people trying to infiltrate and mm. get and like you know convert get the young recruits but we also had um you know i was i was taught by monks benedictine monks and Bened- the benedictine monks were the ones that um 
Whereas like a Jesuitical monk, if you ever watch um, movies where there's like an evil cardinal in red who's mm-hmm. like influ- whispering in the ear of the king, that's a Jesuit. Okay. Okay. They're like the Henry Kissingers of like the Catholic Church. <laughs> Damn. And then, uh, and like when you look at law schools, yeah. like Loyola, all these law schools are. Right. They're uh, Jesuit schools. Right. Because yeah. Jesuit, Jesuits are like, you walk in the world and you influence the world. Yeah. And then the Benedictines are a more meditative order. So like when the plagues hit Europe, the Benedictine monks, uh, they closed the doors to all their abbeys because they were like, well, we got to keep the books. So like they're kind of like the external hard drives of civilization. That's amazing. And so these dudes who were the monks that were, you know, teaching me, they woke up at 5 a.m. and they like tended gardens and then they fixed like the school buses during the day. And a lot of them had had um, lives before they became monks. Mm. So they weren't like weird, uh, like misfits mm. who like became priests because they wanted to hide from like, right, right, they, want, right. they definitely wanted to hide from the world and contemplate existence, but yeah. kind of later in life, not like okay. from the start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, some of the first classes that I had were uh, like uh, it, like religion classes, like were arguing was Jesus a communist or wow. was he a com- you know like let's look at early Christian life Holy was communal shit. you know what that's crazy that's so wildly different from my educational experience that's, I, you know that's I went right. to public school in the suburbs so it was pretty much like Benjamin Franklin said this <laughs> and then he said that yeah and also bifocals goodbye you're done for the day yeah or like we really studied church history so yeah. by the end of it there's no way that you could be an idealistic Catholic wow. you were like you were like oh wow like this was a corporation the yeah. Catholic Church is a racket, a real estate racket. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, the Catholic Church. They're doing their best, am I right? Yeah, yeah. So it's weird because, like, I have no affiliation for... I would never give money to the church, and I have no um, interest in promoting the... Uh, Were your parents religious at all, or no. you just went to Catholic school because that was the... My dad's religion's like, if the crops are failing, you know, sacrifice someone. <laughs> and then... <laughs> And, uh, no, he, like, only went to church, like, when, you know, he went to the doctor and they were like, hey, your liver's fatty, or, like, whatever. <laughs> and or, like, your like, blood I, sugar's a little high. I and he's go like, talk to God. Mijo, I gotta go talk to God for, like, once. Yeah, you know? that's awesome. You go to church once. On an a la carte basis. Yeah, and then my mom, I think she was into, like, uh, there's, like, the respectability of um, being affiliated with some organization. Mm-hmm. And then also this twisted logic that she thought, well, children rebel. You know, we, everyone rebels against their parents and against society. Because she did. She, like, left her comfortable um, suburban life to Mm -hmm. go work to, like, marry a Chicano activist and go be a lawyer, but not, like, a corporate lawyer working for Exxon, which I'm sure would have made her a ton more money. Yeah. She decided to be a lawyer for, like, people who are are trying to escape, uh, you know, ethnic cleansing abroad. Yeah. Yeah. So right there, you know, she rebelled against her family to do that. To, I don't want to say downgrade, but to shift laterally yeah, if we're looking a, at it in a strictly like capitalist american view you could call it a downgrade well it's it's opting out of a lot of the privileges that come from white supremacy yeah and then uh so yeah so then she looked at me and she's like you know my children are definitely going to rebel against whatever i'm doing oh. that's her logic because that was her framework so she goes well i'd rather them so she was like send them to church early so that they will rebel from it exactly that's very smart you know, rather than like, you know, raising an atheist kid who then in her mind, that child would like become a idiotic born again. That's very interesting. That's or like um, become a hot topic. She Satanist. was, she was 
<laughs> she was playing the long game with you. That's kind of uh, yeah. that's very fascinating to me. I don't know if I agree with that view, yeah. that worldview, but I do you think understand. It well, no, I still got hangups. We all do. But, <laughs> well, you sure. know, don't you? Yeah, I think we're, no matter what. Yeah. <laughs> no matter. Yeah. I mean, my parents, uh, we like I, I didn't go to Catholic school, but we went to CCD for a while. Yeah. Uh, and eventually, because like uh, my parents were never, well, my dad died when I was young and my mom was never, uh, neither of them were ever very religious, but the the grandparent generation, the generation above them, all very Catholic. So I think sort of ab- out of obligation, my sister went to Catholic school for a little while. I didn't, but we went to CCD for a while. But thankfully, eventually, we all kind of s- stopped giving a shit. Yeah. Uh, which I'm thankful for to this day. Because uh, even going to CCD, I remember being a little kid and listening to all these stories and just kind of being like, why Why am I here? What the fuck is this shit? So I got a... One thing is that I, that I love is like, you know, Catholicism is... Uh, one of its ingenious things is that it's kind of like the thing from John Carpenter... Like the, from John Carpenter's The Thing, it's, okay. it, it will cap uh, Catholicism goes into whatever country or culture it's uh, and, and then it sort of adopts and sucks up yeah. uh, elements from that yeah, culture. Absolutely. So it's always changing. You know, an Italian Catholic is going to be very different from a French one, from a Mexican one. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then you've got like Santeria in the Caribbean. And right. You've got so you've got all these syncretic religions and uh, traditions and. Um, there were 100,000 Salvadorians moved to Washington, D.C. in 1980 mm. when uh, Archbishop Romero got executed, assassinated by uh, U.S.-funded death squads. Mm-hmm. And that, that was the, school game. That was the, the genesis of the Civil War in El Salvador, the most recent one. So the um, all of those uh, Salvadorians brought their own traditions with them. And the Catholic school across the street from my house had uh, had Spanish mass which was like night and day different. There mm. were like folk songs and yeah. everyone's like dancing and singing. Yeah. So that didn't look at all like the austere Catholicism that I would see when I went to Orange County or right. like, you know. Yeah. White, it, it's, it wasn't white Jesus. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. No, I grew up with white Jesus. Yeah. Sure. White Jesus is a bummer. Yeah, for sure. And, I mean, uh, <laughs> Jesus in general for me personally is a bummer, but white Jesus especially. <laughs> well, yeah, I went I went to Mexico for uh, Christmas. I was in Guanajuato. Uh-huh. Guanajuato is this beautiful city where it is a mining town, and they used to have silver there that they would mine. And then, the, but the thing is, is the the soil is so full of minerals that when you bury bodies there, they they get mummified. Mm. So los momias de Guanajuato is a big thing, and we're there for uh, Christmas and. Uh, we go to a, a midnight mass, and I'd never seen this before. I was blown away by a zombie Jesus. Because you see Jesus down there, it looks like he just got back up. Oh, my God. You know, he's like walking dead Jesus. Oh, you my know? God. He, di- he didn't come back all fresh and so clean. You know, he came back <laughs> with, like, bones hanging out and, like, the... You just see how it's a graphic depiction. It's like a gruesome resurrection. Yeah, so freaky deaky Jesus, and we couldn't stop laughing at him in the uh, church. My mom was so upset at us, my brother and I. We got a case of the giggles because that's how we react <laughs> when happens. we see something horrific. It happens. Yeah, why did me and my sister do the same thing? <laughs> yeah, and then uh, and but beautiful, you know, people were bringing their these little baby dolls up to the altar to get the priest to bless them, and uh-huh. uh, you just see something unique like that because the niño is much more worshipped than uh than right. resurrected jesus you mm-hmm. know the innocence of the the child or the la virgen she means a lot more too so right. yeah, even yeah. though it's catholic it's to some degree it's like this matriarchal religion when you're when you're part of the cult of la virgen mm-hmm. 
you know and i like uh santa muerte that's my that's my jam that's your one yeah but that's like he's not official but sure sure sure, you know, sure. death is gonna come for all of us and is a great equalizer and that's true the uh, the what's it called on game of thrones the uh many-faced god that's <laughs> yo yeah that's who i worship man. a boy likes the many-faced god that's right that's uh, well, I, just because I never asked, I mean, we do kind of need to wind down, but I never asked. How was the Greek culture present at all when you were being raised? Uh, not so much. My 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 grandmother's sisters uh, a little bit more. My grandmother was a very ambitious and smart woman, and she grew up in a uh, Rock Springs, Wyoming, which is a coal mining town. And really, there was there was the bar, there was the brothel, and then there was the mines. Mm. So there isn't a lot going on in that town if yeah, you're like. Yeah kind of have any ambition and the closest city you run away to from rock springs wyoming is salt lake city so that's like (laughs) that's their new york city wow is the mormon Mormon capital capital, the beehive (laughs) so not the bayhive it's just a beehive so she run. so uh, my grandfather came back from world war ii he was a a medic and uh on the uh what is it the european theater Mm -hmm. and he comes back from world war ii and he's a he's a, a company doctor working for the coal mines checking out all the all the people Mm -hmm. and uh my grandma was like she saw him come into town and was like that's the one all right so she hitched her wagon to this uh young young doctor making his way out west to california and uh i think that for her she was raised greek orthodox Mm -hmm. um these were greek coal miners so my great-grandfather is a socialist Mm. you know a uh, union man All right. from the one Democratic um, county in Wyoming, which sure. is Rock Springs, because that's where they actually had coal miners. The rest of Wyoming's like uh, libertarian ranchers and mm. oil people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I bet they all have their own YouTube channels. Yeah. So Ro- <laughs> <But> Rock Springs <laughs> feels a little bit like New Jersey, you know, okay. because it, like when you think of Wyoming, Wyoming is like, you're just, I think of like white cowboys, you know, mm. but uh, all these people got to Ellis Island from, uh, from, Europe, and they were immediately put on trains to Rock Springs to go work in the coal mines. Wow. So that uh, city uh, had a large Chinese, um, Greek, and Italian population, which is like atypical. Yeah. I mean, that does sound like New Jersey. (laughs) Yeah. And so, you know, my grandma got out of there, and I think part of, you know, uh, that 1950s recreation of the united states i think she recreated herself mm-hmm. and sort of assimilated into yeah suburban gotcha 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 life wow yeah you're I, you're yeah. you're a very like history you're a very like conscious of history human i dig it yeah well you you can't you know where are you going you, you don't know where you, you got you got to know where you came from yeah but i mean i i mean well my family doesn't go in this country doesn't go back very far like both grandparents on both sides were immigrants like the peruvian half and then the irish half so like i don't i mean i should look more into the the international history but i don't have like this deep-rooted connection to the country like that and it's funny because like i was thinking about i don't care about the united states at all yo neither do i you know if it if it dissolved tomorrow it doesn't bother me i don't think it bothers me that much either i don't feel very much of a connection to it at all but as long as it exists as this imagined collective that we're all part of, I will strive to make it better. Yeah. So that's why, you know, I look at, that's why I'm, I would vote for Bernie in a heartbeat. Mm. Because you, I, would, I would rather everyone here have universal health care. Mm. You know, I would rather everybody here have uh, some protections and we have more uh, equity yeah. being distributed fairly among yeah. all the people. 
Oof. So yeah, man. Yeah, that's, man. It's a. Uh, so I'm like a little. I'm like a little socialist Chicano. Look at that. Look at you. Yeah. I love that. Chicken X. Chicken X. Gabe Pacheco, Chicken X. Uh, Is there anything we haven't touched on that you wanted to bring up? Hey. Anything uh, left on the notes sheet? I don't know. I don't care about the notes. (laughs) But I'm just having a fun time in here. Yeah, no, I'm so happy to have you. Uh, Doing my own people's history of the United States. I'm super into it. (laughs) This is by far the most, like, uh, I'd say, like, informational uh, of these episodes, I think. Well, I would say, for anybody listening that cares about, you know... um, uh, making it integrating yourself into the mainstream society as a as a mixed race uh, or immigrant person please that's look, our... do your own thing man yes. who cares i don't care yes. stop do not become a, a blue check brown or black face for white supremacy Woo! don't do it Woo! Uh, make your make your own work and uh, find your own audience and try to do things as independently as possible, which is a thing that you can do now with Twitter and Patreon and uh, Venmo. And you can Venmo me at Gabriel-Pacheco. There it is. Because that's how it works. There it is. Because we all, look, and uh, we all have to support each other. And um, you know what? Your voice, you might think that it doesn't, it's, put your voice out there, put your work out there, because they're guaranteed. They're, this is a country of 300 million people. You will find people who identify with you and what you're saying and you're probably not wrong uh with whatever your your feelings and observations are that aren't being uh represented by the mainstream media or entertainment system i couldn't have said it better myself yeah if you don't fit into one box or even two boxes make your own fucking box that's right and uh you can find me at uh <laughs> what a segue go 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 <laughs> you can you can find me you, you can find my album i just put out a stand-up comedy album after 10 years of doing it in new york city the stand-up comedy album is called risky behavior and it's on 800 pound gorilla records and uh it's on everything itunes and amazon and look i'm sure that you can find it for free i don't care <laughs> but I would love it if you left me a rating and a review on one of the platforms that matter. So Gabe Pacheco, Risky Behavior. And I have a weekly comedy show at Pete's Candy Store in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. It's called Funhouse Comedy. It's 10 p.m. every Wednesday. And my co-host is Samir Nassim. And uh, he's, a, he's a Muslim Indian guy. And I'm a socialist Chicano dude bro. So come. Our shows are... It's a it's a rainbow coalition of a lineup every week, and we'd love to see you come hang out and break bread with us. Amazing, become part of the family. You heard the man, everybody. Gabe, thank you so much for coming, man. Thank you, Adrian. This was so great. Yes. A handshake no one will ever see. <laughs> <laughs> And that's it for another episode of La Mescla. Thank you so much to Gabe Pacheco for coming in. Thank you to Simple Studios for the recording space. Thank you to everybody who's listened and subscribed. Make sure to leave a rating and a review on iTunes. It legitimately uh, helps so much. And keep spreading the word about the show. Uh, And I echo the last point that Gabe made at the end of that episode. If you're somebody who feels like you don't fit into a category, you feel like there isn't content out there that speaks to you, you're not feeling seen in the stuff that's out there, then don't wait in line. Make that shit yourself. That's what I'm trying to do with this show, and it's growing little by little. Uh, And every so often I get people sending me messages that this thing is relatable to them or makes them feel seen in some type of way. Uh, And that means the world. That means a lot more 
than, you know, network TV money or whatever. Although I would really love money. If anybody would give me money, you can Venmo at Adrian Burke. That would be so, so awesome. Because uh, taxes are a thing, you guys. Recording this one on tax day. Oh man, these outros always go so off the rails. Anyway, please, uh, please rate, review, and subscribe and whatnot. And we'll be back next week with another episode of La Mescla. Thank you. Goodbye. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.